Welcome to the Anthem Ventura podcast, uh, and once again, you can tell uh, this is not the live recording from our Sunday gatherings. Rather, I'm coming to you from our offices right outside downtown Ventura. Uh, we are still working through those same technical things as last week, and so thanks for your patience and your grace as we are working to do that. But what this has been uh, allowing us to do is uh, I've been able to sort of revisit my notes a day or two afterwards. So I'm recording Tuesday morning around 8 a.m. Um, and uh, so preach this message Sunday evening at our at our gathering. Uh, took the day off yesterday to take our son Calvin to the zoo for his birthday. Uh, and then I got to open up my notes again this morning and just rethink about and, and let um, just some of the, the texts and the thoughts and, and some of our conversations on Sunday stir me again. And so I'm actually excited to revisit these notes with you. And so once again, uh, this is really helpful for those of you who weren't able to be there with us Sunday evening, so you can keep tracking along with us in the book of Matthew as we're studying together. But also, uh, I hope this is helpful for those of you who were there Um and maybe you will, I mean, just the reality is two days after, I'm going to be thinking through some different things. Uh, I'm not going to be in that same moment listening to the Spirit in the same way. And so I, I might revisit some things differently. I might skip others or whatever. So I actually hope this is maybe a deeper dive for those of you who are there on Sunday. But regardless, uh, let's go ahead and open up together to the book of Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, and uh, once again, if you're listening to this while you're driving or whatever, probably don't open your Bible or anything. I can read it, but if you're, if you're sitting down somewhere, open up your Bible with me to Matthew chapter 7. That's where we're going to start, um, and, but, but before we get there, uh, I just, wanna, just want you to know if you have not had a chance to listen to our Matthew Ketchup and Context uh, podcast, uh, please go listen to that even before you, you continue on this one. Um, I spent about 25 minutes or so just help realigning ourselves in the book of Matthew, reframing where we are at, not only in the story, but in, in time and space, right? And, and just the historical context of Matthew itself. Um, Jesus says uh, and does and teaches some, some strange things throughout the book of Matthew, and even stranger if we don't know the cultural climate in which he was teaching and preaching and healing and, and all of that. So please go back and listen to that. It's really helpful to set the stage and to know what kind of world Jesus was born into. Okay, so that said, Go back and listen to that if you haven't already. Uh, but for everybody else, we're going to jump into the book of Matthew. We're in Matthew chapter 7. Let's dive straight into the text. Matthew 7, verse 7. Jesus says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives, and the one who seeks, finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for just the opportunity for our church to slowly soak in the words of your son, Jesus, throughout the Gospel of Matthew. 
uh, right now, as I'm revisiting my notes and, and people are, are listening, would you uh, even be ministering to us right now? Would you empower my, my teaching and preaching, as strange as it is to be staring at a computer doing this, would you empower me to do this in a faithful way that honors you and the text? And God, would we as a church community um, just be changed because we've encountered you in the scriptures? And so, Father, would you speak to us? Um, and would you help us to see what you're trying to say to us as a church? Amen. Amen, amen. All right, so we are in the Gospel of Matthew, and Matthew wants us to understand that Jesus is someone special, that he is the continuation and fulfillment of all of the history that God has had with the Israelites. And not only that, but the goal of God's history, his redemptive history, is to be with his people. That's the end goal of what he's trying to do is to dwell with his people. Now, the Sermon on the Mount is where we've been these last few months. And it's Jesus' first and largest block of teaching in the Gospel of Matthew. And and I would say it's probably one of the more important ones. Uh, One of the things that's interesting is as Jesus continues to teach throughout the Gospel of Matthew, we can find a lot of the roots to what he's saying uh, kind of found in uh, the Sermon on the Mount, especially in the Beatitudes and some of the earlier parts. And so this is really foundational to the rest of his ministry. And the Sermon on the Mount is is two really big things. It's accomplishing two really big things as Jesus is teaching to both the disciples, those who have said, yes, I want to follow you and orient my life around you, and to the crowds who are, uh, Jesus' fame has been spreading all throughout Syria and the area, and he's healing people and preaching and casting out demons. And so he's developing this reputation. So he has a crowd of people, we don't know how many, hundreds or thousands, that are following him. And so he, he's kind of doing two things with the Sermon on the Mount. And the first is this manifesto of how to live in this new kingdom. So it's sort of like a, a giant mission statement. It's like a flag planted in the ground and saying, this is what life in my kingdom is. And that's aimed at his disciples largely, but it's also a standing invitation to the crowd. So, so those who are looky-loos or those who have maybe been healed but haven't said, yes, I want to follow after you, or those who are just checking him out, it's an invitation to anyone and everyone into this new way of life. And Jesus says the way into this kingdom is the realization that you have nothing to bring to the table. And so for that, we can go back to Matthew 5, 3, where Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And so this image of poor in spirit is literally having empty, open hands in front of you. And it's exclusively by the grace of Jesus that you're brought in to the family and kingdom of God. So far in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has uh, taught on our identity in him. He's taught about the relevance of the Old Testament or what he would call the law and the prophets. He's taught about anger, lust, divorce, oaths, retaliation, loving your enemies, generosity, prayer, fasting, anxiety, judging others. So that's a healthy sermon right there. That's a lot of things to pack into a short amount of time. And today, Jesus teaches us that when we believe that God hears us, God answers us, and God is good, we tap into the richness, power, and beauty of a vibrant prayer life that changes reality. And so I just want to start with a question, um, and that question is, what do you believe about prayer? And I actually 
want to help unpack that just a little bit, but give you a few moments to even think about that. Like, is it an empty discipline for you or a rich experience? Does the Spirit speak to us in prayer? Has prayer even work? You guys ever felt like your prayers hit the ceiling or sometimes struggle with whether or not God actually listens or cares or responds to your prayers? Do you ever feel like prayer is worthless or like it doesn't matter? And so just take, take a moment here and just think, what do you actually believe about prayer? Now, I ask all these questions because the reality is we're probably all starting from some very different places when it comes to prayer. This won't necessarily be comprehensive, but maybe one of these statements might resonate with your experience of prayer. Prayer doesn't make sense. The idea of talking to God seems ridiculous. Or prayer's important. I may not know how it works or how to do it, but it seems important, so I'm going to try. Or maybe... I've tried prayer in the most desperate times of my life, and it hasn't worked. Or, I've been a disciplined prayer for years, and I've seen its power and fruit. Maybe for some of us, we would say God has answered our prayers. Maybe others, we'd say God has not answered my prayers. Prayer is a divine mystery. N.T. Wright says it's one of life's greatest mysteries. And he has this great quote I want to read. He says, most people pray at least sometimes. Some people in many different religious traditions pray a great deal. At its lowest, prayer is shouting into a void on the off chance there may be someone out there listening. At its highest, prayer merges into love as the presence presence of God becomes so real that we pass beyond words and into a sense of his reality, generosity, delight, and grace. It's a divine mystery, but there's something about it. The Archbishop William Temple says, When I pray, coincidences happen. When I stop praying, the coincidences stop happening. But Martin Luther, the great reformer, says no matter how mysterious, it's essential. He says to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. So if prayer is so essential, so crucial, like breathing to our aliveness, why don't we do it? Right? Why do we put it off? Why do we see it as less essential? Why do we feel like it's useless or a waste of time? Why do we see prayer somehow less worthy of our time? Jesus taught on prayer before, and it's actually just one chapter uh, before us in the book of Matthew. So turn over real quick to Matthew chapter 6, verse 5 through 13. So this is a very familiar or common passage about prayer that you might have read before. It's the Lord's Prayer. And he says in Matthew 6, 5, And when you stand, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. 
for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So it's really interesting to see he's teaching about prayer twice in the same sermon. So this is maybe separated by a few weeks because of how we're approaching the teaching. But for the disciples and the crowds listening to Jesus, he sees it. Uh, it's, it's in one sermon here, one time frame, and he sees it as that important to revisit it again. But he teaches about prayer in two entirely different ways. So the Lord's prayer is in the context of practicing your righteousness before men, right? And kind of this fake and false uh, air of righteousness that we put up before people for the approval of them or whatever. But when he circles back to prayer, he does it in the context of relationship. So look at how he talks about prayer in chapter 6. Jesus says, Do not be like the hypocrites who love to stand and pray so that others will see. Rather, pursue an authentic prayer life where the only opinion that matters is God's. Simple. He's not saying that you absolutely like can never not pray in a prayer closet in your house or whatever, but he's saying that the posture and motivation of our prayer should be trying to commune and, and spend time with God rather than the, uh, seeking the approval of other people. The second thing he says is do not heap up empty phrases like those who don't know God who are just trying to be heard by something or someone out in the universe or whatever. Rather, have confidence that we serve a God who hears us and knows us. So this is really important. Those who heap up empty phrases do not know God. They're just hoping some spiritual thing out there hears them. Instead, we serve a God who hears us and knows us. Thus, we can have confidence. So it's all about having the right motive, the right heart posture in this spiritual practice. And Jesus sees this aspect of our lives as so essential, but yet there's a disconnect, right? Before he was making sure we just don't pray for the approval of others and all of that, but now he circles back around and says there's an important relational component to prayer too. And the power of prayer, Jesus says, doesn't come from a formula, repetition, or elegance, but rather it comes from relationship. So look at how he talks about prayer in chapter 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, you will find. Knock, the door will be opened. Jesus says, Our Father in heaven likes to give good gifts to those who ask. It's a very different posture than, than if we're just trying to shout our prayers into the universe and hope a God hears us. Or it's a very different posture than standing in front of people and praying these long, elegant prayers simply so that others will see and hear us. There's a, there's a posture of readiness that God has to hear and respond to those who earnestly seek him that is found in chapter 7. And part of the problem with prayer, I think, is we don't believe this text and its implications. Some of us are living weak, dry, distant, and anemic lives because we're not praying. And we're not praying, I would suspect, because we're not believing something about 
God. Because if we truly believed that God hears us, he's answering us, that he's good, that he wants to interact with us, and that that this is for our benefit and for his glory, all these things, then we would earnestly be seeking him in prayer all the time. But I think we're not praying because we do not believe, maybe for for right now, one of three things. I'm sure there could be a lot of things, but we're going to hone in on three things. One, we don't believe that God hears us. Two, we don't believe that God will answer us. Or three, we don't believe God is good. We don't believe the power of prayer when we don't believe any or all of those three things. But Jesus says, when we believe that God hears us, when we believe that he answers us, and we believe he's actually good, we tap into the richness, power, and beauty of a vibrant prayer life that changes reality. So now, okay, we might be on board and saying, okay, fine, I'm on board, let's pray. How do we go about this? Now, before we get there, we have a little bit of a problem with prayer, don't we? Even a problem that's beyond ourselves or the disbeliefs we might have in God or the gospel. So say we're on board with prayer and we start kind of looking through the Bible about how to pray and we start looking at some attributes or characteristics of God and we start to learn a little bit more about God and we start to come into a weird tension with prayer and some of who God is. Think of how little prayer makes sense when we grasp the Bible's claims of who God is, just his nature, his character. For example, God is omniscient. Just in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says he knows what we need before we ask. So why bother ask if he already knows what we need? God is omnipotent. He does not need our help. Psalm 115 says, the Lord is in the heavens and does what he pleases. Okay, he doesn't need our help. God is sovereign. He's in control of all things and he's going to accomplish his will. So why bother pray if he's going to accomplish his will? Logically and theologically, prayer makes very little sense to us sometimes. Our best theological case for prayer is that Jesus just tells us to do it, right? I mean, when we look at the attributes and characteristics of God, prayer makes very little sense. But relationally, prayer makes a lot of sense. Have you guys ever met someone who, like, prays a lot, a lot? Like, prays a ton, I don't know if you have that person in your mind. I I certainly do when I was thinking of this text. Uh, I grew up at the same church from age one to like 22. So I had a lot of family history, just a lot of deep relationships uh, with people there. It's where I first learned how to preach and teach and gave some of my first messages and sermons. and, And there was this one lady... She's an older lady. I don't know how old she is, but forever she's kind of ingrained in my mind as like an 80-some-odd-year-old lady. Her name was Betty, and she was always cheery. And no matter how many people were in a service, whenever she heard something she liked from the preacher, she shouted, praise the Lord, like really loud. There could have been like five people in the room or 500 people. She didn't care. When she heard something she liked, she shouted and she affirmed. And she's just like a really fascinating lady. And but, but I knew Betty prayed a lot. She prayed a lot. Like you would go up to her and say, okay, Betty, how are you doing today? And she would just grin. Oh, honey, I'm just so blessed. How are you doing today, Betty? Oh, could not be better. 
no matter what life circumstances were, no matter how bad her health was or, or whatever, she was always blessed. Life couldn't be better. And because I knew she prayed a lot and she was spending time with the father. And there would always be like on her face, some sort of thing. Like I could tell her and God had some inside joke or story that like I was out of the loop on. And she would just kind of smile at me and, oh honey, I'm blessed. And she just had this inner satisfaction and value found in the father. Now, when you meet someone who prays like a lot, a lot and spending time with the father a lot, there's something different, right? There's maybe a sense of worry or anxiety that begins to fall away. There's a sense of joy and satisfaction from just simply being with the Father. And it always felt like I was on the the outside, like, man, what are you, God, talking about when I'm not looking? There's always some something like Betty and God know something I don't. But there is just this, this sense that she had spent time with the Father. And there was something different about her relationally, prayer makes sense because God's goal in all of history since the beginning has been with his people, right? When God creates humanity, he walks with them in the garden. And when man and woman introduce sin to the equation and sin into all of creation, what's broken is God's relationship with humanity. And since then, he's been pursuing a re-relationship with his people, Here are a couple of other reasons why prayer might be hard for us today. We are very results-oriented. God is process-oriented. So when was the last time you had a boss or a manager who was (laughs) process-oriented? No. Like, we we attend our jobs to get stuff done. We're there for a reason. We are results-oriented. We are very goal-oriented. God is very relationally oriented. And so neither of those are necessarily bad things. Like we should be goal oriented. We should have goals in life, things we're we're working and striving towards. We should be results oriented, seeing the fruit of, of our labor. But they become very dangerous things when they seep their way into our prayer life. Because as we find out in the story of God, God is very process and relationally oriented. Prayer often does have goals and often produce results. Like we, we are praying for people who don't yet know the Lord and we are praying for things that have not yet come to fruition. And, and there, there are results that happen. There is fruit there. But God is far more concerned with the process and the relationship than the results and the goal necessarily. That's pretty hard for us. I mean, how much easier would it be if God were a genie and whatever we asked, we got right away? Like, I bet this coming Sunday, all of you guys would be up at the front, on the carpet, on your knees, praying immediately during the worship times for all sorts of stuff, right? Because, man, if we just immediately got on our knees and prayed and God answered it just like that, I'm sure that would be some great motivation for us to spend time praying. But process is hard for us when we're used to kind of everything else being so instant. Not only that, we kind of devalue things that take time to develop. It's kind of why my wife and I don't have cable. I mean, there's a lot of reasons for that, but in large, we'd rather pay for Hulu or Netflix or whatever than pay for cable, and we want to watch what we want when we want, and we don't want to watch commercials. 
right? That's the kind of culture we're, we're living in. We devalue cable, which is more expensive and has boatloads of commercials, and we can't watch the shows that we want when we want to watch them. And so sometimes you kind of treat our prayer life like Hulu or Netflix or whatever and just say, well, I'm going to pray for the things that I want when I want. And if I don't get an answer immediately, I'm just going to stop doing it because it's not working. But process is where God does some of his best work. It's where he tinkers on us. It's the space he's making us more like himself. That's why the tone and posture and even procedure of this teaching on prayer is in the present imperative, meaning it's meant to be read, ask and keep on asking, seek and keep on seeking, knock and keep on knocking. Not only do those things uh, reference the, the persistence that we should continue to go to God in prayer, but it also references this idea that prayer is a process. It's not something that just happens to us overnight where we get our prayer answered or we see that person get saved or we get that thing we've been waiting for or whatever, or we're suddenly made more like him overnight. And maybe those things have happened, but those tend to be the one-off, not the norm. Jesus is not only teaching that we should pray, but we should embrace the process that comes with a vibrant prayer life. So let's, let's just take a few minutes and look at how Jesus develops this process. And the first is found just in those first two verses, to ask, seek, and to knock. And so to ask is to come to God in humility and awareness of our need and neediness. So I don't know if you guys know this, I have a two-year-old. He just turned two this last weekend, Calvin, and he is very aware of both his need and his neediness. Right, the first thing he does when he wakes up in the morning after we change him, get a new diaper and all that, he comes out and he runs to the kitchen and he asks for a banana. Can't really say banana yet, so he says gaba. And so he immediately runs to the kitchen. He knows where we keep the bananas. He points and he shouts, gaba, gaba. Like in that moment, he knows his need or maybe his want, right, a banana, and he knows that he's needy, like he can't get it for himself. We place the bananas out of reach for him. And so to ask is to come to God in humility and awareness of not only our needs, but our neediness, right? That we present our needs before God and we present the fact that we can't accomplish those on our own. For most of us, the the problem is we're not too too eager and excited to ask for the wrong things necessarily, because that's a, a hindrance for us. We don't want to ask for the wrong things. The problem is that we're not eager enough to ask for the the right things. Right In James chapter 4, James says, you do not have because you do not ask. And you, and you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly. Right, So sometimes we get tripped up and we don't want to ask for the wrong things. We don't want to mess it up, so we just don't ask at all. And the right things, quote unquote, doesn't simply mean like good moral qualities. Right, Though if we were to pray for sanctification, holiness, humility, lack of pride or whatever, or these other really dangerous things, God may just give them to you. But it means we need day by day, uh, the things we need day by day. We're asking God for our daily bread. Right, And God is just as concerned as we are for the things we need day by day. 
If he is a father, let's treat him as a father, not as a bureaucrat or authoritative dictator who wouldn't be bothered with our trivial, irrelevant concerns. Like, how, how terrible of a father would I be if when Calvin gets up and asks for his gaba, if I just say, I can't be bothered to unpeel bananas this morning. I have more important things to do. No, that'd be terrible. Like, I, I, I could just go and give it to him, but I want him to ask. I want the interaction. I want the relationship built there in that moment. The invitation here is not so much to ask that you get whatever you want from God, but rather it's to experience what God wants us to experience, which is relational depth with himself. So to seek, to seek connects one's, uh, one's prayer with responsible action in pursuing the will of God, which means we don't pray and then sit on our butts, but we get in there and join God in his work. N.T. Wright says God is working like an artist with difficult material. And prayer is the way some of that material cooperates with the artist instead of resisting him. I've talked to a bunch of couples over the past few months who are, who are struggling or whatever, and, and Sherry and I are like no masters at marriage or whatever, but we tend to be the people where maybe some people go to, and, and they've tell me, you know, and they kind of tell me the troubles they've been having, and my first question is always is, are you praying for your spouse? Because most people are not praying for their spouses, and, and so sometimes they'll say, yeah, yeah, I'm praying. They've prayed over and over again for God to change their spouse, but they don't get off their butts and, and join God in growing their own marriage. They just kind of like pray for them and then like sit on the couch and cross their arms and are like super bummed out that their spouse never initiates a date night or never cleaning up around the house or, or whatever the problem is. Relational depth happens not simply when God is pursuing us, but when we're pursuing him too. So as we seek, we're not only meant to just ask God for the things we want, but join him in that work. So if your marriage is struggling and you're praying to God to help your marriage or praying for your spouse, also get in there and join him. Like actively make your marriage a place where the gospel thrives. Don't just pray for them and sit on your butt and just say, well, it's going to take a miracle to fix my spouse. No, get in there and join him. Relational depth happens not only when God is pursuing us, but when we're pursuing him too. How much of a bummer would my marriage be with Sherry if she was the one always initiating like date nights together, always initiating quality times or intimate times together or whatever. And I never, ever reciprocated. I never pursued her. I never validated that. She just kept coming, coming, coming. And I kept saying, oh, okay, cool, whatever. Like that would be a a pretty big bummer of a one-sided relationship. And so as God is pursuing us, he's inviting us to pursue him as well. And there are a couple of ways that relational depth is manifested. And one of them is just the joy in being found by God, right? The result to our our asking and our seeking and our knocking is to be found by him and the joy in those moments. And Jeremiah 29, 11 uh, is maybe one of the more famous verses in the Bible. Chances are you probably memorized it at some time in your life. And it's a great verse, but I actually love the verses that come after Jeremiah 29, 11. And so Jeremiah 29, 11, uh, It writes, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. So this is Jeremiah writing down kind of the prophecies of the Lord. Declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. 
cool. And we usually stop there, and that's like very encouraging and uplifting. But if we continue, verse 12, then you will call upon me and, and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all of your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. Such a beautiful picture of the end result of our asking and our seeking is to be found by him. He promises that when we ask, seek, and knock, when we devote ourselves to pursuing him, that will not return void. And the second way this kind of relational depth manifests itself is that our desires change a little bit. So through the process of asking and seeking and knocking, we might become surprised at what becomes the desires of our hearts, right? Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 6, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and everything else will be added to you, right? But seek first the kingdom of God. And maybe at the beginning, that's a bit of a chore, but as God makes us more like himself, that actually becomes our delight to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, Now, just this past weekend, my son Calvin turned two, and he's not really at the age where he's asking for birthday presents. In fact, he really doesn't even know what to do with birthday presents sometimes. He ends up playing with the wrapping paper and the ribbon more often than the toys, but maybe maybe next year or the year after or something like that. So think about what a a three-year-old asks for their birthday. It's usually pretty ridiculous things, right? Like, what, what are they asking for their birthday? So sometimes it's like they're just thinking way too small. Like, I'll take that. I want the ball. I want the ball. It's like 25-cent ball. Or they go way on the other end of the spectrum and say, I want a pony, right? I want a pony and a castle. All right, bro, you're not getting a pony and a castle, right? This, it's ridiculous things they're asking for. But as they grow up and as they spend time with you, the things they ask for change, right? The things they ask for mature, they develop, or, you know, just like growing with God, the more we're we're with our kids, the more we grow and mature, and the more they begin to ask for the things that we might ask for, because their, their tastes and the way they see the world begin to mimic ours just a little bit. Many people have found prayer really hard and almost impossible because they thought they should only pray for like really good moral things, but really remote things that they actually had little or no interest in. And prayer just dies from efforts to pray about those good things that honestly don't really matter to us. So think of the last time you were asked to pray for some missionary you've never met or some poor, impoverished people across the world. That's not a bad thing by any stretch, but if we're feeling disconnected to that, our prayers can feel really dry. The way we get to meaningful prayer for those good things, for those things we should be praying for, is to start by praying for what we're actually interested in, right? And Dallas Willard says about this, that the circle of our interests will inevitably grow in the largeness of God's love. It's a beautifully simple and profound verse. The circle, or profound statement, the circle of our interests will inevitably grow in the largeness of God's love. Look at Psalm 37, verse 4. The psalmist David says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Classically, maybe misunderstood verse at times uh, where we think, Oh, well, sweet, if I just spend some time praying and worshiping today, God will give me everything I want. It's not that simple. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. As we spend more and more time with the Lord, 
We find that our interests, our value systems, our ways of being satisfied, the things we care about change, and they tend to change to be more like the way he sees things. So as we spend time with him, we begin to see the world and people in our lives and our family and our friends the way he sees them. And as we spend more and more time with them, the way we see the world aligns more and more with his way he sees the world. And so as we are seeking and asking and knocking and spending time in prayer, we start to pray for the things that God wants and are in his heart. So to ask humbly, like a child, knowing and aware of our needs and our neediness, and to seek to partner with God in this process, and to not just sit on our butts and expect Him to do the work, but pursue Him right back. And to knock is to keep at it over and over, months and months, years and years. God does not want us to give up. Jesus is saying he wants his disciples to be persistent in prayer, confident that their father will provide whatever is best for them according to his sovereign, gracious will. Now, some have seen these ask, seek, knock as practically equivalent, but it seems better to see that Jesus is sort of indicating a rising scale of intensity here. Right, And so if my son, Calvin, were to ask for a banana, that is kind of one level of intensity. Once he starts to seek out a banana, not just ask me for it, but then go and find it, that's a whole nother level of intensity that is happening right there. So this happened the other day, actually. He, we have these little like fruit pouches, which are, I, I'm sure, a healthy form, but he loves them. He just gobbles them up. It's like a little envelope full of like smoothie goo. Don't really know what's in there. Sherry says it's healthy. Anyway. He grabs one because he wants one, and he like, you know, he asks for a pouch, right? And then, you know, Sherry said, oh, not right now, you know, maybe a little bit later or whatever. Uh, And then he goes in the pantry, gets one out, and holds it up to her, right? So not only is he asking for it, he's seeking it out. He found it, and he's holding it up to her, and he's asking for a pouch. And she says, oh, no, not right now, buddy. We're going to wait till a little bit later. And so what happens next? He does not put it back in the pantry. Parents, you know exactly what happens next. He comes and finds me and asks me for that same pouch that Sherry already said no to, right? So there's this rising scale of intensity that's happening. He not only asks for it and then seeks it out, but he is persistent in trying to get an answer, so think of the imagery here of just someone banging and knocking on the door. Jesus' disciples are to ask the Father continually as a manner of life, to be constantly responsible in pursuing God's will, partnering with him and not just expecting him to do it all, and to maintain this unremitting determination in expecting the Father to answer. Jesus has, tells this great parable in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, about uh, the persistent widow. And we have this imagery here in this story of a widow who will not give up, who wants justice. And in verse 1, Jesus says, and he told, or Luke writes, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought to always pray and not lose heart, to be persistent, to not give up. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. And for a while he refused. But afterwards he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. 
And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? This is interesting. Jesus is saying, as we are to be persistent in prayer and not lose heart and demand justice and expect an answer from God, that requires faith. If we are faithful to ask, seek, and knock, God is faithful to answer and engage. Jesus tells us our asking and our seeking and our knocking is not fruitless because we have a good father who loves his kids and wants to give them good things. Look at Matthew 7, verse 9. Or which one of you, if a son asks for bread, would give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father, who is in heaven, Give good things to those who ask him. God loves to give good gifts to his kids. He knows how to provide what's best for us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says the right way to pray is to stretch out our hands and ask of one who we know has the heart of a father. We're not asking a dictator. We're not asking a bureaucrat. We're not asking a deist God who created things and then walks away. We're asking a good father who likes to answer and respond and give good things. The hope and anchor of prayer is always God's goodness. His goodness as a father. If God is not good, why pray? If God is some distant deist God who created the universe and then kind of steps away and let us all try to figure everything out, why bother praying? If God is not interested in a relationship but has his will and nothing's going to stop his will, why bother praying? If God is some demigod, you know, trying to mess with humanity in this Machiavellian kind of way, why bother pray to God? Jesus is basing his whole teaching on prayer on the foundation that God is good. He likes to answer. He hears us. As disciples, Jesus calls us to be persistent in prayer, confident that God hears us, answers us, and provides for us according to his plan for our lives. Prayer is the primary way we partner with God to bring his rule and reign back over the earth. This may be one of the more important tools we have in our toolbox in helping advance the kingdom of God is to pray. To Jesus, prayer actually changes reality. Prayer changes reality. If anything of significance is going to happen, it'll be birthed out of prayer. Because it forces us to see the world that God sees, to see people like the way he sees people, and to look to his kingdom advancement, not for our man-made solutions, for real change in this world. Jesus says there's a really important relational component to prayer, and that the power of prayer does not come from a formula, from repetition, from elegance, for how good you are at it, how long you've been doing at it, or how many fancy religious words you use, but the power of prayer comes from our relationship with the Father. 
when we believe that God actually hears us, that he likes to answer us, and that he is good, we tap into the richness, power, and beauty of a vibrant prayer life that changes reality. We have a good father who likes to give good gifts. Jesus is giving us an open invitation to cooperate with God, right? Not fight against him, not resist him, but to cooperate with him through prayer and to be shaped by him. He loves to shape us. He loves to provide for us. And he invites us into a relationship with him to ask, to seek, to knock. The invitation of this text is to come seek God in prayer. Not that he's not seeking us. The entire history of all creation is God seeking us. He says, don't delay. Don't give up. He is your father and he is good and he will give you good things. And I think the problem with prayer and our prayer lives is we have not yet been convinced of God's goodness. I know that's where I trip up. When I'm not praying, when I'm not convinced of the the power and the value of prayer, I have not been convinced of God's goodness. Now, for some of us, uh, that may be a salvific conversation, like you have not yet said, Jesus, my life is yours. I want to follow after you. I want to I be your apprentice, be your disciple, right? So some, some of us here uh, in this conversation, we haven't been convinced of God's goodness to even be a part of his family. But for others of us, it's maybe these momentary lapses in belief of the gospel and God's goodness, because the invitation to come seek God only exists in the reality of the gospel. Not that we were good and have been seeking God, but that he is good and he came seeking us. Like Paul says in Romans 5, while we were still sinners, God showed his love for us. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So maybe your prayer is, God, please come and find me. I need you. Come and find me. Allow me to find myself in you. I want to be found by you. Maybe your prayer is, God, please show me that you hear and answer prayers. Maybe your prayer life has been dry or distant or non-existent. Please show me you hear and answer prayers. Maybe for some of us, The prayer is, God, please show me you're good. Show me that you're good. Show me that you're a good father who cares and wants to give good things. Jesus frequently uses the image of a father to describe our God in heaven. And that's hard for some of us because we may not have a good earthly father to compare him to. And so that's a tough leap for us. And so maybe your prayer is, God, please show me you're a good father. The problem with prayer in our prayer lives is that we have not yet been convinced of God's goodness. So as you respond, as you spend time in prayer or in worship or whatever is next for you in this day, ask the Lord to show you his goodness. Ask the Lord to convince you of his goodness.
Let's pray. Father, thank you for this profound, yet kind of simple set of verses. Help us to not make this more complicated than it is, to ask, to seek, to knock. I have a hunch sometimes we make the things you say in the Bible more complicated than they're meant to be. Would you help us approach you with a childlike awareness of our needs and neediness? Empower us to to partner with you and to seek after you as you seek after us. And, And God, give us strength for the long journey of persistently knocking and having faith in that journey. And for for those of us like myself who at times are not convinced of your goodness, would you remedy that? God, would you, in the goodness of, of your spirit and your character and your nature, show me how good you are. Show me you're a good father. God, for our church, would we be a church convinced of your goodness, so convinced of your goodness that prayer is of the utmost importance? Father, would you grow us as a community in this discipline and joy of prayer? We're thankful for uh, just your son giving us access to you as a good father. And God, we're thankful for your spirit dwelling inside of us, equipping and empowering us for our lives. Amen.